it's an injustice if people have to choose between putting food in the table or accessing essential medicines to keep them healthy. Welcome to Global Dispatches. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. This week, we are bringing you daily episodes from the 78th United Nations General Assembly, produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, and it was a very busy day at the United Nations. Of all the days this week, today was arguably the most packed with high-level consequential meetings. Throughout the day today, and well into the time I am recording this, was the Secretary General's Climate Ambition Summit. We will bring you full coverage of that in tomorrow's episode. Also today, the Security Council held a meeting on Ukraine, which featured Zelensky's first address to the Security Council in person since Russia's invasion. Things got a little heated in that session. Albania is currently serving as president of the Security Council, which rotates monthly between each member. Albania has been sharply critical of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and before the meeting even formally began, the Russian ambassador and the Albanian prime minister traded barbs over a procedural question of whether Zelensky would speak first or last. At one point, the Albanian prime minister looked to the Russian diplomat and said, I'll make you a deal. If Russia stops the war, Zelensky can speak last. Needless to say, that ended the debate. The Albanian prime minister used his prerogative as president of the Security Council to ensure that Zelensky spoke first. And in his speech, Zelensky called for reform of the Security Council and the elimination of the veto for countries who invade other countries, namely Russia. His remarks on UN reform were rather squarely aimed at securing support from UN member states who feel that the Security Council, in its current formation, has too much power. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov gave a rambling response later in the session, but Zelensky left the room well before then. Beyond the Security Council, there were two key meetings on global health, one on pandemic preparedness and response, the other on universal health coverage. I will be speaking with Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation, about those meetings and more global health action happening at the UN General Assembly this week. That will be our second segment today. Our first segment features my interview with Vera Songway, chairwoman and founder of the Liquidity and Sustainability Facility and co-chair of the high-level panel on climate finance. Today, there was a significant meeting on financing for development, which to my mind is one of the most important events of the week. We recorded our conversation last week, so I went down to the Trusteeship Council at the UN today to get a flavor of the proceedings. I arrived just as the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka was giving some opening remarks, and he was followed by comments from representatives of blocks of countries. And of these, I found the comments from Palau's diplomat, who was representing small island developing states particularly interesting. He made a point that was repeated throughout, namely that the cost of borrowing money for development is far too high. It is difficult to get concessional loans, and the commercial market is too expensive. 
He and others called for reforms of multilateral financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank to ensure access to better loans with longer repayment terms. It was an interesting and important meeting, and here is Vera Songwe explaining the significance of this meeting to the SDGs and Paris Agreement. Before we get into the details of the high-level dialogue on financing for development, can I have you define what we mean by financing for development and set the general context in which a meeting like this is being held in the first place? I think two things when we talk about financing for development, as we know, we have put the number that is needed for meeting the sustainable development goals. I think to talk about financing, one almost needs to talk about development. Today we have at least on the African continent, over 100 million people that are living under a dollar a day or in absolute poverty. Development means getting those people out of poverty. So essentially what we want when we talk about development, and I think it's important to talk about development before one talks about financing, is to talk about all the girls today in the developing world from Africa to India to Latin America that do not have access to safe education or have access to schools but are not getting the right quality education you know, talking about all the mothers that die in childbirth because they don't have a clinic next by and next to them and have to walk distances to find a doctor. It is talking about the 600 million people that do not have access to electricity. That is what development means, right? We need to give these people the ability to live a healthy and prosperous life and a life that gives them and allows them to use the opportunities that they are endowed with. And that is what development is about. It's really lifting everybody to a standard of living that is satisfactory. Of course, today, that has been complicated by climate. Development also means living in a part of the world where climate disasters do not affect you inordinately and that you cannot address them. It's different if you live in Florida and you suffer a climate disaster and if you live in Haiti or Mozambique and these people don't have the financing to be able to manage the loss and damage that comes with it. And so to find the financing to do that is important. And so that's why we talk about development, because we want to give everybody a fighting chance to be able to accede to a healthy and prosperous life. Now, how do you do that? You need financing. You need resources to build the right kind of energy. You need resources to build a good hospital. You need resources to develop and industrialize and provide services in a sustainable manner and one that doesn't hurt the planet and rather hopefully heals it in the process, hence the circular economy conversations. And so that's why we talk about financing. And over time, we have, I think, let up a little bit in the sort of global financing for development conversations. And so today we find ourselves in a place where we need a lot more resources to be able to get to where we would need to be. We have just finished a report. We being, I sit on a high-level panel for the G20 finance ministers where we're recommending some reforms and we're asking for $3 trillion to be able to respond to the development imperatives of the world, of which we say that $260 billion of that should go to the multilateral development agencies that will then leverage the private sector to be able to deliver on a lot of this. So these are the resources we are looking for, is $3 trillion a year, every year, between now and 2030, to help us get to this space. 
when you talk about it like that, it sounds like it's a lot of resources, but really when you break it down and you see the private sector today has about $136 trillion in market capital. And so trying to see how we can leverage some of that, bring some of that into the development space to help do development as well as deliver profits for those who are investing in these spaces is something that we believe should be doable. But the reason why we're having this big conversation at Onga is that it's not happening. What is the current state of play of financing for development? If you identify a target figure of $3 trillion per year to put us on track to reach that 2030 sustainable development goal target date, where are we today? We're not there yet. That's the beginning. We are, I think, making progress to get there. We just had a what we will call, I think, a positive G20 meeting in India, where there was commitment to relook at the numbers and see whether there is a possibility to take us to where we would like to get to. One of the numbers that we look at the most and the most closely, of course, because it's a number that is easy to put together, is sort of what are all the multilateral development banks doing and how much more will they need to move forward? Right now, in the sort of global multilateral development space, we're at about $105 billion. We need to get to $260 billion of that $3 trillion. So we're halfway there in terms of what is needed. But, you know, the last mile is always the most difficult. But we need that to be able to make progress. So in that context, what will you be looking for in this meeting at the United Nations? I think the UN has, you know, the convening power it brings, you know, global leaders together. We still need to do a number of things, three things in particular. One of them is maybe build more consensus towards the number so that we are all aligned in what we are asking for and what we need it for. There is a debate between climate and development and how well those two fit. I think it is now mostly settled about, you know, what we need to do. There is a debate around subsidies and taxation. I think the UN has a role to play in bringing people around. We talk about global public goods. Global public goods mean that you need global public institutions to legislate and regulate them. It is this kinds of global forums that the UN provides that can do that and do that very effectively. And then finally, we need then sort of the advocacy on the precise numbers for precise activities. And I think that that is also part of the conversation that we should be having at the UN. Of course, there's always the voice conversation, but there is a voice conversation at the UN, which is maybe more political. And then there is a voice conversation that happens in the Bretton Woods spaces, which is a little bit more about reforms of the IMF and the World Bank and the global financial architecture and how that can be made more inclusive. But that conversation starts with advocacy and knowledge awareness at the UN and how one can do that in a more effective way. Do you expect at the high-level dialogue on financing for development that countries and governments and those that are participating might coalesce around that $3 trillion a year figure that you earlier identified as being necessary to do what we said we'd do to achieve the SDGs and climate outcomes? The good news is that, you know, at the G20, there was already some coalescing around that figure. So we can satisfactorily say that, you know, the G20 received the report and the figure. Well, I think that, yes, now it will be to sort of expand the coalition of the believing in some sense around that number so that we have a lot more 
and also just raise awareness, right? The report went to the G20, didn't go to the G196. And so if we can get the 196, which is sort of, I think, the UN constituency to come together around that, it's an even more powerful result. Are there any other concrete outcomes that you'll be looking for during this meeting? I think the other concrete outcomes, of course, the subsets of the big one, right, is, you know, maybe more conversations around a global tax on carbon. And again, it's redirected back to financing for development. But if there is a global public bad, which is called sort of, you know, climate pollution, then can we correct that with what we will call in economics a big Rubian tax, which is sort of to penalize those who are polluting with the imposition of a tax and how should that be structured? Again, I think there needs to be more discussion around this about how we will implement it once it is put in place. And and I think and hope that this will be some of the conversations that we have at the UN around this time. I think we will also be looking to see, of course, we're going to have COP28 in November, December, so there is time to build. But there is a conversation around what more can we do by way of accelerating the transition to a cleaner, greener, more sustainable economy. And hopefully that this will be some of the conversations we have. So lastly, you know, weeks or months from now, how will you know if this meeting had any meaningful impact in discussions and debates around climate finance? I guess we will know in December when we hear, you know, there is a lot of conversations around, first of all, just the loss and damage fund and funding the loss and damage fund and the announcements that will be made. There is a big conversation around $100 billion. There is, again, the $3 trillion of which $2.4 trillion is for climate finance and $1 trillion is hopefully external financing for climate finance. If we can get those numbers to come together, and that's the good thing about numbers, we know the number that we're looking for. And so we will be able to measure in November, December, whether we were able to convince, do enough advocacy such that by the time people come to the COP28 and in Abu Dhabi, there is enough consensus around some of this ideas. And like I said, there is a loss and damage fund was created in Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt, the last COP. And there's a lot of negotiation going on now about how to fund it. It would be good to be able to get to Sham el-Sheikh with an announcement around the funding, but more importantly, with clarity around the $1 trillion of external financing that will be needed to help stem or keep the global climate at 1.5 degrees. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Songwei. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you to Vera Songwei. Now here is my conversation with Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. Kate, thanks so much for joining me once again uh, during another busy United Nations General Assembly. It's my pleasure, Mark. Good to be with you today. Kate, I take it as far as these things go, there was some high drama around whether or not countries would actually come together around these three big global health meetings. Can you just explain the politics of what happened and why so many observers, I imagine you among them, were 
biting your nails so uh, eagerly these last couple of days? So these three high-level meetings related to health issues on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, on universal health coverage, and on tuberculosis are nested inside a very busy UN General Assembly high-level week. There is an unprecedented volume of negotiated processes that are concluding this week, and that has put pressure on missions all throughout 2023 to jointly negotiate many different political declarations and outcome documents. Foremost among them, obviously, the Sustainable Development Goal political declaration, which was adopted on Monday at a head of state and government summit. These three health high-level meetings had three political declarations that member states had been rolling up their sleeves and working to negotiate over the course of this past summer. But really what I think happened was that they ran out of time. The clock was against them as missions were stretched thin across a range of processes. And by the time the previous president of the General Assembly, whose tenure ended in early September, by the time he finished his tenure, those three political declarations, member states did not feel like they had yet come to full consensus on all of them. They were kind of partway through in midstream in the process. So the president of the General Assembly kind of passed it on both to the incoming president of the General Assembly, but then also back to member states and said, this feels like the best effort, these drafts as we have them now. And he sought member states' endorsement to kind of approve them for high-level week. And it really did come down to the 11th hour to understand whether member states had, as a kind of consensus, felt comfortable enough with these three political declarations in order to kind of gavel them in this week. But this morning, I'm happy to share that the first of the three high-level meetings, the one on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, opened, and member states did approve the political declaration for that high-level meeting. That obviously then bodes well for UHC, universal health coverage, and tuberculosis on Thursday and Friday, respectively. Yeah, I mean, that really is the 11th hour. You know, as of yesterday, it wasn't even clear that they would come to that consensus and really agree on that political declaration. As you said, the fact that they were agreed to the pandemic political declaration does bode well for the two other high level meetings on health issues down the road tomorrow and then Friday. On the pandemic, prevention, preparedness, and response meeting. You know, you and I have spoken a lot in the past about a potential international agreement on this topic, not necessarily a treaty, but something close. What happened at that meeting and what did the political declaration say that might suggest progress towards some sort of international agreement? Well, the political declaration says a lot about what might happen with a future pandemic accord or treaty in that member states kind of resoundingly reaffirmed their commitment to the process of negotiating that accord. The actual negotiation process for a potential pandemic accord kicked off nearly a year ago in Geneva based with Geneva-based diplomats as they attach to the World Health Organization and its constitution is like the kind of 
legal umbrella under which this accord would sit. And those negotiations have been heating up in recent months. Part of that, I do think, led to some complications among member states in trying to think about what is relevant for them to say in a New York-based UN General Assembly high-level meeting that is not redundant to, contradictory to, and actually adds value to the substance of what's being negotiated in Geneva on a pandemic accord. But the final text does reaffirm that member states are committed to the development of a pandemic accord as a authoritative legal instrument that would better allow individual countries to step up their preparedness and response capacities, but also importantly, that sets kind of norms and ways that member states can work as a collective, work as a global community to ensure the world is better prepared for the next pandemic. So it's fair to say that this political declaration, this meeting did add momentum towards the development of a potential legal or instrument or agreement on this issue to be negotiated at the World Health Assembly, maybe even next spring at the next WHA's meeting. That's the target that member states set out for themselves close to two years ago when they decided to pursue this negotiation among themselves, that in May 2024, they would bring forward a draft pandemic accord to the World Health Assembly. So member states in New York and Geneva have been really working hard against that timeline. I think it does remain to be seen. We didn't hear too many member states today talk specifically in the General Assembly Hall about a May 2024 timeline. These negotiation processes are complicated. This set of topics is very complicated. And I think they want to give themselves space to make sure that they have the right legal instrument at the right time. And so they resoundingly spoke about their commitment to the accord development process, but we didn't hear as many say the words May 2024. So tomorrow, there will be a big meeting on universal health coverage. And you know, as you said earlier, because countries were able to agree at the last moment around a political declaration on the pandemic issue, it strongly suggests that they will be able to agree again at the 11th hour on universal health coverage. What are you looking towards in that meeting? And maybe just by way of explanation, can you help people understand why UHC, as it's known, is such a a core issue for the UN right now? So universal health coverage boils down to two essential things. One is that every person on this earth deserves access to a package of essential quality health services. That is the fundamental right that people have, is access to quality care. The second big piece of it is that it comes without financial impoverishment. Every year, 2 billion people are pushed into poverty or deeper into poverty, paying out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. And it's an injustice if people have to choose between putting food in the table or accessing essential medicines to keep them healthy. So that's the core tenant of universal health coverage. Everyone deserves access to services without impoverishment. It's enshrined in the Sustainable Development Goals in SDG 3 as a global target. And the challenge with universal health coverage 
is that it is woefully stalled. Less than a third of all countries have actually made progress on either of these two indicators in the last two decades. And member states and WHO is the preeminent authority for health are seized with the fact that progress really needs to accelerate. Less than half of all people on this earth have reliable access to high quality essential services. So that's the purpose of this high level meeting on universal health coverage. Member states began talking about this issue in New York four years ago and adopted a very ambitious health declaration in September 2019, committing to the vision of universal health coverage according to the SDG target by 2030. The pandemic, of course, was the key challenge between September 2019 and today. And you can imagine, many of us experienced that Access to health services in the height of the pandemic was really difficult, not to mention, obviously, the effects of COVID as a disease itself on millions of people around the world. So progress was lost on this topic. So during this meeting, is there any concrete outcome that you're looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not progress can be revived or even accelerated? Well, I'll just say generally, political declarations like the ones that we expect are adopted this week in the General Assembly become tools of accountability, national level accountability, mutual accountability among and between countries, and global accountability to the ambitious targets of the SDGs. When member states write down and and kind of approve tomorrow a political declaration that says they commit to accelerating progress, They commit to not only ceasing the kind of backsliding that has happened in the last three years, but actually accelerating progress, reaching 500 million more people by 2025 with essential services on the path to meeting the full target of universal health coverage in 2030. That's a tool that national stakeholders, civil society organizations, and others can use to try to enhance accountability for progress and action. And it's also a blueprint, a vision that stakeholders from a variety of sectors can rally around to align that we have a set of kind of actions that we can prioritize to get there. And I think that's the promise of what this outcome document on universal health coverage can do. So the last of the big three health meetings is on tuberculosis. It's happening on Friday. I guess two questions. Why focus on a specific disease and why tuberculosis in particular? So tuberculosis is in many ways kind of a canary in a coal mine of inequality. It is a disease that overwhelmingly has burden in low and middle income countries. 95% of TB cases are in low and middle income countries. And it often is one that affects vulnerable populations most. People living with HIV, migrant workers, people with irregular access to housing. And in part, that's because the treatment regimen is pretty complicated, right? It takes a while to get cured of tuberculosis, but it is quite contagious. So it's easy to catch, hard to cure. Member states in 2018 made a commitment to a high-level meeting at the heads of state and government level on tuberculosis, recognizing that it 
in and of itself was a symptom of inequality and injustice in the global community. And this meeting on Friday is a chance to reflect back, you know, five years later, how much progress has been made, where do we need to double down and kind of recommit energies, resources, and attention on this issue. The political declaration for tuberculosis has a couple of key elements in it. It has a deep emphasis, for instance, on accelerating research and development for new TB tools. There hasn't been a TB vaccine in 100 years. As I already mentioned, the treatment regimen is complicated. Even diagnosing it is complicated. So can we make those easier? Can we have new countermeasures in the fight against tuberculosis in the near term to try to accelerate progress on this disease? So lastly, these three health topics are you know, different issues. You know, pandemic is one thing, universal health care is another, TB is another. Throughout the week this week, are there common elements or threads between these three issues that you're following in particular that you think, you know, those of us who are more generally interested in international affairs, foreign policy ought to be following as well? Yeah, I would say a few things. One is there's a resounding sense that in order to achieve progress on any of these issues, health ministries in the global community needs to radically reorient to a strong primary care system, the kind of first point of contact that people have with healthcare systems. 95% of essential health services can be delivered at the primary care level. It is also the very beginning of where we might see an emerging pandemic, right, is when people start to access their healthcare system. So a resilient primary care system is not only essential for universal health coverage, it is essential for tuberculosis treatment, and it is essential for pandemic preparedness. So that's one key theme. Another that I think we're seeing a lot is financing. Financing is not an issue that is unique to the healthcare space in the public health space, but governments around the world, especially kind of emerging out of the past few years of a global pandemic, are feeling huge financial stresses. And they lack the fiscal space to accelerate progress on the SDGs or on the health-related high-level meeting agendas in specific. So where does the resourcing come from? How do we boost and pull all kind of ships into the same direction on a prioritized set of financing, new financing to try to turbocharge progress on these issues? So that's a real common thread as well. Human rights is another one that has come up a lot and inside that gender equality, right? 70% of the healthcare workforce is female. They're overwhelmingly undercompensated but at the front lines of care. And if we don't achieve gender equality in health, but also obviously across our global community, then we're at risk of losing ground on the SDGs altogether. Well, Kate, your answer not only created a thread between the health issues, but throughout today's episode, because the first segment focused on finance, and tomorrow we're doing a segment devoted to gender equality. So it was a perfect answer to conclude our conversation. Thank you once again for helping me understand all things global health happening during UNGA. 
Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. A big thank you to Vera Songway and Kate Dodson for joining me today. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. And we will see you tomorrow for the final of our daily UNGA updates from the 78th United Nations General Assembly. 